This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today, you are in for a treat. We are speaking with Dr. Michael Tuig, a well-renowned and respected professor of psychology from Utah State University. Dr. Tuig co-runs the Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Research Group with his colleague, Dr. Michael Levin. Mike's research focuses on the use of ACT across a range of clinical presentations with an emphasis on obsessive-compulsive and related disorders. He has published over 200 scholarly works, including seven books, with the most recent being ACT in Steps with his colleagues, Dr. Michael Levin and Dr. Clarissa Ong, and The Anxious Perfectionist with Dr. Clarissa Ong. His research has been funded through multiple sources, including the National Institute of Mental Health and the International OCD Foundation. In this first part of the episode, you'll hear Mike talk about his research into the ways acceptance and commitment therapy-based principles can help improve treatment outcomes when used with exposure and response prevention. You'll also hear Mike talk about the principle of psychological flexibility, not just for clients, but for us as practitioners. Let's get started. Today, we are joined by Dr. Michael Tuig, who is a wonderful and very prolific researcher and licensed psychologist in the area of OCD, joining us all the way from Utah in the USA. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself in this area of research. I'm glad you asked that question because it's a fun story to me. In my master's program, I'm working with a man named Doug Woods, who's well known for trichotillomania and Tourette's syndrome research. And my master's thesis was on the treatment of trichotillomania. I literally asked him one time, I said something like, we want people to do this habit reversal, this behavioral thing. And I'm like, but they find it too hard and frustrating and overwhelming. And I'm like, what should we do? And he said, well, you know, there's this thing called ACT. And I think you'd like that. So we go out to Reno, do an ACT training with Steve Hayes and learned how to do ACT and then came back and did ACT plus habit reversal for trichotillomania. And when that paper got accepted, I remember Doug saying to me, you don't know how good an idea this is. And that was 2004 and here it's 18 years later. And and he was right, it was a fairly good idea. So I got into Steve's lab, Steve Hayes' lab, and I did my PhD there. And it just was sort of like, I've already been working in TRIC and Tourette's syndrome and OCD was the logical next step. And some of my supervisors there were like, it's a good idea. Not much new has happened there in a long time. Like that would be wise to try to grow that area out. So we started doing work and it was kind of funny because I wasn't an OCD person. I was an ACT person who found a disorder. And I'll just say I've stayed because one, the clients like coming into treatment, which I like that. And secondly, I kind of love the obsessions. It's sort of weird to say, but... No, I totally get it. Yeah, almost the more complicated and disturbing the client says, the more I'm like, yes, this is going to be fun. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What do you think you love about them? 
It's such an interesting challenge. Like when someone says that they're like caught up in this thought, they show me how much they're suffering. That's really interesting. And I can help you get out of that. Like there's a path out of this and this will be really fun to show you. And like it works. I mean, it's not like I can get them to do it every time, but it does fit and it does work if they can do it with me. I always find it fun. It's really magical to watch. I can relate to that. I found myself falling into working with OCD while I was a student. I was doing my clinical placement and it was the last one I had to do. So I was almost finished. And while working with the condition in an inpatient hospital here for a specific program, it was just like, wow, this is amazing. Like, yeah, clients are motivated, but also, like you said, the distress they experience and knowing that logically it doesn't make sense, but they can't help it in that moment. It's like, this is actually really fascinating and the content of the thoughts and where their imagination can take them and where their mind takes them in those moments is just incredible. But then watching the treatment unfold, it's just amazing seeing it all unfold and seeing the distress relieve itself. It's wonderful. And you know, if you're sort of an analytical thinker like me, it's fun because they say, I obsess about this and I do these behaviors. And then you can just sort of say, oh, so if you do that, or if you fear this, then you probably do this, right? And you're like, yes, Ellen, you probably do this too. And it's you can kind of predict how it's going to build out. And I think that that's a lovely moment for clients, isn't it? Because I think at the point that they come into therapy, often it feels so ununderstandable and so overwhelming. And so then to have that experience of having a practitioner kind of get it and say, no, 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 this actually is typical or it's understandable and here is what we're going to do about it is so powerful. In the USA, we talk a lot about cultural competency. So like understanding these different cultural groups. And I think like with trichotillomania or OCD, there's a certain style within that group. And if you get their group's culture, they really appreciate it. Like if they say, oh, I have harm OCD. And you're like, okay, so driving's difficult. Kitchen's difficult. You know, crossing the street with other people's difficult. And they're like, yeah, how'd you know? And you're like, well, that's, <laughs> that's how this works for you. Yeah. It's very validating. Mm-hmm. Mike, I know that you were a real specialist in ACT and ERP. You've done a lot of research about ACT for OCD alone and then integrating ACT with ERP. Can you tell us a little bit about specifically ACT and the concept of ACT as a therapeutic modality as well as then we'll move into ACT for OCD? Okay. And I'll sort of say this, recognizing there's a broad audience listening, right? That's mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Just talking to other people with PhDs. Yeah. <laughs> And I'll describe it in the realm of OCD. So if someone has their obsession, right, and that's some form of an uncomfortable thought, it could be incredibly uncomfortable to the extent of disturbing, but then sometimes it's even just a weird feeling. Things don't feel right, or if the person can do the thing in a certain way, then they'll feel more comfortable. So whatever sort of difficult internal experience is happening, whether it's a really clear thought or some kind of emotion or some kind of bodily sensation, what we're trying to do in ACT is reduce the sort of objective, literal interpretation of that event. So if like you have a fast beating heart and a tight chest, and can you just observe that feeling and not call it good or bad? Just sort of see that sort of interesting bodily state you're in. And then if you have some words in your head, even if they're like really rough words or really rough pictures, can you recognize that it's just a picture in your head? It's just words in your head. And if you can do that, and that's that thing we call diffusion, then The next thing we talk about, which is willingness, which is like being open to having that feeling being there and not having to do anything to control it. 
if you can step back from the thought and see it for what it is or the feeling, and then you can make room for it, then it doesn't have the power to push you around. I often notice, like I just say that like it's easy. That whole step's not easy, but it's totally doable. So someone can have a very disturbing thought and you can find a way to just notice it and let it be there and not get entangled with it. And if you can pull that off, then the simple move I say to people is like, let's make our moves about things that you care about rather than controlling thoughts or feelings. And like in every moment, is this action you're doing, is this moving you towards something that you're interested in or is it about getting away from a feeling? So like even in being interviewed right now, my mind's saying like, oh, are you saying it right? Like I have a small feeling of anxiety. I have like, oh, it's being recorded. And I'm practicing it right now. Like I'm just letting those be there. I'm not engaging with them, focusing on you two and connecting with something that's really important to me, which is teaching people about good therapy. That's one of my goals you know, as a professor. And when I do that, it's like the power of the anxiety and the chatter, it's not as big. And then my metric isn't how anxious or comfortable am I? It's, did I do the thing I want to do? That's act. We would try to help someone do that with their anxieties or their obsessions. Just as a side note, why do you think we struggle so much to take a non-judgmental approach? Why do we get so caught up? And I'm not just talking about people with OCD, all of us. Why do we get so hooked in, do you think? My take, and this is a little bit mixture of academics and maybe personal, is that we categorize things into things we should have and things we shouldn't have. And without even thinking, we pursue this one category and we move away from the other category. And I'd argue that's pretty unrelated to who we want to be, what we want to do. But we get caught up in that, making our lives about feeling a certain way. I've been having some chats with some young people lately, particularly those who are nearing the end of school about sort of identity development and about how, yeah, you're right, this idea about things being conditional. So success is conditional on feeling good, for example. It is not a good outcome. I am not a success unless my anxiety is disappeared or I feel good or I feel joy. These two things have become so tangled. People who are doing well in life, most of their effort, and sometimes I say 80% of their effort goes towards doing things that are important to them. And maybe 20% goes to emotional control. Like people who are struggling, the numbers are flipped. The majority of their life is about emotional control. And not that much is about doing things they care about. And I don't always mean care about like out having fun cleaning the house and getting your work done and cooking or spending time with your family or it's just stuff when you look back at the end of the day, you're like, that was worth my time. I think that emotional control plays such a huge role in OCD in terms of just not wanting to feel what they're feeling in response to the thoughts. Like I often ask my clients, if you didn't feel what you were feeling in response to these thoughts, would it bother you so much? And every time the answer is no. It's that need to want to regulate in terms of, and so when you were talking about that idea of pushing away the emotion rather than moving towards your values and what's important to you as a person is a really wonderful way of thinking about it in terms of going, even though I feel uncomfortable, can I make room for that and still do the thing that's important to me day to day, even if that's washing the dishes or spending time with my family or finishing this assignment or whatever it might be. Well, and I think this interesting thing happens where you have a thought and then just due to conditioning, all this emotion comes, which then does this funny thing to the person of like, well, that must be really important. It's just some funny conditioning. With reference to that and the research that you do, 
How does ACT-based principles kind of weave into more of the exposure element of OCD treatment? So to me, exposure exercises, they're opportunities to go practice whatever it is you want to do. You could practice following your values or you could practice acceptance or diffusion, like practice living with and making room for your difficult thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And when we did the first studies on ACT for OCD, like we purposefully didn't do a bunch of exposure exercises, we would say to people, you know, between this session and next, we're going to do these valued commitments. We're going to go do things that are important to you. But we didn't do any of the in-session, like let's go find a difficult situation and sort of bring your distress up, hang out in there and see what happens. Because we know that's really useful. So we wanted to see if teaching this psychological flexibility, these ACT skills would have some impact. And what was really interesting about that study, which came out 12 years ago, it had a pretty big bang for a small amount of psychotherapy. And what I saw in that study is if you taught people how to be psychologically flexible and then told them to go away and practice that, at, once they understood how to be psychologically flexible, they could move pretty well with these exercises. Now, clinically, there's no reason to skip practicing in session. I mean, it actually makes a ton of sense. Like, Go practice being psychologically flexible with these situations. So that's when we started doing trials where it was ACT plus exposure exercises versus exposure exercises. And the two fit together quite logically. And I'm not the only person to do that. Um, Steve Hayes did that a long time ago. Michelle Krask has done some really big studies. I mean, literally one hour before I got on this call, I just saw Joanna Arch just did a study where she did social phobia exposures with self-compassion mixed in and not that kind of idea of incorporating acceptance diffusion values into these difficult exercises has turned out to be a real reasonable and logical thing. Interestingly, there's a ton of work out of Iran and we're doing some papers getting them printed in English so people can also see these results. A lot of their work doesn't include the exposure exercises and they're getting these similar results. We're working on a paper with the group out of Iran and I'm really curious why they didn't include those two. I think they were just following the manual and doing it that way and it works out. So long story short, you can learn to be psychologically flexible in session or you can learn practicing with exposures. Clinically, it makes more sense to me to practice with exposures. Those results make sense to me, I think. If we think about what's going on in our clients' minds, there's exposure happening constantly intrusive thoughts coming in, triggers being out in the environment. So there's internal exposure, there's external exposure happening. And if we're teaching them to drop the struggle rather than push away, block, et cetera, and we're teaching them to be flexible and to be open and curious, it's almost like we're teaching them to do exposure therapy without the structured exercises. That to me kind of makes sense. I can see how the outcomes would be just as good. One of the things you're saying that I think if you're a clinician or into theory, if you're doing an exposure exercise, like you're approaching something that's difficult, you're staying in that situation, different professionals have different goals from that exposure. My goal is to learn how to function well with your stuff. And someone else's goal might be to have less stuff at the end of the exposures. And that'll play into what you teach during the session. So I don't teach habituation. I teach psychological flexibility. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. One of the things that you teach around, you don't use SUDS, subjective units of distress as scale. You've researched using the concept of willingness to keep experiencing discomfort rather than rating how intense your distress is. And I find that fascinating. Well, because the traditional behavioral model, which came out, I'm not even exactly sure when the first studies came out. I think out. it was the 80s, maybe <laughs> 70s, 80s. The model is that if we you know, bring up one's emotional response and do not engage in avoidance behaviors, then we'll have a habituation to it. And that's true, but the more recent research is saying that that rate of habituation is not related to good outcomes. So whether the habituation in session or between session, and you know, some of the people whose work I respect a ton, like Michelle Krask is saying, it's one's ability to tolerate the distress is most predictive of good outcome. And I often say ACT just takes it one step further. We say accept, which is like truly make room for eternity, whatever shows up. And my model, the one I work on, is your ability to notice and make room for that the obsessions and such, that's going to be most predictive of a good outcome. And you notice in there, I don't even talk about how often your obsessions happen. I would like their intensity to be less because high intensity means high fusion. Less intensity means you're more diffused from it. I find myself gravitating to that. I think in our clinic, we gravitate to that approach fairly strongly because it makes sense. But also, like you said, so does the other version. But what we notice is it allows our clients to feel empowered. It allows them to feel less afraid of the process. I mean, they're still anxious and worried about what they're going through, but the process of treatment is less scary. And I think if the process of treatment is less scary, you're going to get higher treatment adherence and willingness to be, well, we call it being reluctantly willing (laughs) to give it a go (laughs) as opposed to dropping out or finding it overwhelming. We find it really empowering. Our clients really gravitate towards it. Well, and I kind of like it as a long-term thing, because if you're saying your obsessions and anxiety may come and go, then if due to conditioning, it it kind of pops up one day, they're not like, oh, I'm doing a bad job. It's like, oh, it's going to come and go. Like, I'm ready to handle it. Especially with fear in a sense that that gets encoded into our long-term memory so easily. And it's about recognizing this is what I used to be afraid of. This is what's coming up in this moment because I've been triggered and understanding that process and leaning into it rather than judging it as I'm doing a bad job with my exposures. We find ourselves reteaching acceptance and mindfulness-based strategies so much in our practice because it's in schools and young people and adults think that it's this woo-woo thing, that they're supposed to be totally zen when they practice it and that they are supposed to not experience any thoughts and feelings. So we often have to unlearn all of that and reteach what it actually is. Do you find that at all in the work that you do as well? Have you come across that? When you're asking the question, I thought you're going this other way. We can go the other way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have it so much clinically, but it's a very low shot. My son's going to ever hear this podcast. (laughs) But one time I like reprimanded him and and (laughs) I still remember this moment so distinctly. I like reprimanded him and he got 
sad that I reprimanded him. And then he goes to the backyard and I see him sitting there with his eyes closed and his hands on his knees, listening to a meditation on his iPhone. And I'm like, your own dad, you know, writes like books on this. <laughs> And you're using meditation <laughs> to calm down. I was like, how did, how did we get here? It could be worse, right? Like, yeah, that's true. That's right. Yeah. What I thought you were going to say is, like, I have to reteach it so often with my clients. I'm at session eight, nine, ten, and I'm still going over acceptance because the whole world is not with us that this is okay to have. So it's like we work on it and they get it and then they go out into the world and somebody or whatever, everyone's kind of talking to them about it a different way and then they kind of lose it. We come back, we go through it again. So that I have in the sense that if you're a therapist out there and you're like, they didn't get it. Clients don't quickly. I mean, it's, it's a totally different skill from how we usually do things. And it's the fantasy of cure, isn't it? Of being able to be distress-free and finding a solution to the problem rather than living with the challenge. Well, I mean, Tori and Celine, like, is life stress-free? I mean, that's... Never. Gosh, no. It just works. <laughs> no, gosh. That's right. Yeah. No day is even like that. One of the other challenges I think that we have when we come across from working with clients is using mindfulness-based techniques or principles from ACT as distraction. And we find them using it to actually move away from the discomfort. So they're sort of rehearsing these skills or they're doing them almost like mantras whilst trying to disconnect from the emotion and the, of the experience. Is this something that you've come across or something that you've talked about with your clients? I see that. And this is just kind of a guess of someone. I do a lot of training of training people how to do ACT. I mean, it's like my big job at USU or the university I work at. And I feel like the more sort of experiential and less rule-bound and the more metaphorical that I am in the work, the less that happens. It's not something I have as much, but I find my therapists have it. Therapists who are learning, they may be a little more straightforward in how they teach it. If you both of you talked about working with younger clients, you just might be trapped there because I'm a little more straightforward with younger clients, which is going to lead towards a little more rule-following you know, Tori said to do this, therefore I'm doing this. You're kind of caught there. And I think also we're talking about developmental stages as well and capacity for abstract thought and being able to understand these from a sort of a meta position as opposed to the skill of being able to get out of one's body. And these are things that you learn over time, I think. And I know that some of my youngest clients, they really struggle with that. And so we do have to start not exclusively, but really build their capacity to use these skills to understand them. Or often it's actually, I find more and more, I'm actually just teaching the principles to the parents so that in the family space that they are using these philosophies with their child. So as a family approach and perspective for thinking about their child's OCD, that they are not accidentally reinforcing messages about getting rid of distress or habituation and things. And so that way the child is learning through their environment until the day when we can talk really in depth about it ourselves. I completely agree. If you have parents at home who are helping with the OCD to help them understand our model, because it can be almost opposite. Thanks for joining us for part one of our chat. Join us next episode as we conclude the conversation. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au.
This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules.